Hello, I'm Paul Evans and welcome to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity that provides information and support for those of us living with pain. This edition has been enabled by a grant from Big Lottery Fund Awards for All Scotland and with an educational grant from Pfizer Limited. Prescribing opioids really demands a high degree of trust between a doctor and a patient and it's very much a partnership. She actually felt a 50 to 60% reduction in her pain. She now feels she's able to cook a meal that she's never been able to do for a long time because she can stand, her mobility's improved, that's helped with her weight, and the decision between herself and me that she's thought, you know, I don't need to come anymore, I feel happy with what I've got, and we've discharged her from the clinic. Breathe through the pain, let it go. It won't take the pain away completely, but through time, you actually learn to shut everything out. More on those stories later. But here on Airing Pain, we want to feature pain management services throughout the UK. And in April 2010, NHS Highland in Scotland launched its chronic pain service. Now, the Highland region is the largest in Scotland in terms of area, but the smallest in terms of population. So whilst being a stunning area to visit, its size and geography raises particular challenges for those with long-term medical conditions and who live in the more remote areas. Jill Wilson lives in Achintrade, a small remote crofting township at the eastern end of Loch Kishon, and that's on the west coast of Scotland. It will be my 50th anniversary of having pain this June. I was just a teenager, I was 18, and it was a minimal accident. I jumped off a rock on the coast and there was a spike of rock sticking up. Um, I had misjudged the distance, so it's a long jump, and I landed with this spike of rock in my left heel and my whole spine jarred over. And apart from three years after a spinal fusion operation, I have had it 24 hours a day since. We worked out once, and that's 20 years ago, that I had spent £28,000 on my back. Glory knows what it is now. I don't seek to do, I just put up with it more now. Um, acupuncture, osteopaths, chiropractors, physiotherapy, surgery, you know, everything. I had a doctor who actually said to me, I don't believe you have pain. And I said, why? And she said, because the sort of pain you're talking about, I've never heard anybody describe pain like that. And I actually feel as if somebody's thrown a bucket of pain over me with a horrible headache. I can feel nauseous. It's literally from my head to sometimes in my legs, but anyway, from my head right down my back. I have just been in bed. This is my first full day up, in fact, for a week. It's appalling at the moment, and I can't think of anything else. But every day I say to myself, have you had some enjoyment in today? And as long as the answer is yes, and it's only five minutes, it's worth being alive for. Jill Wilson, who lives in the remote Scottish Highlands. So for people like Jill, access to expert treatment and advice on pain management is a high priority. Jackie Milburn's the clinical nurse manager for the chronic pain service at NHS Highland, and John Knox went to speak to her for airing pain. The service actually formally started in April 2010. Prior to that, we had a pilot study for two years um, to actually look at the teething problems and see how we'd have actually developed the formal pain service when we actually got established funding. 
as you're aware, chronic pain management services for managing patients' pain. We're not here as, mainly as a curative service, but as to help patients manage the pain, whether that means through medication, means through other techniques of cognitive management, different strategies like pacing, coping, relaxation. In our team, we have a consultant anaesthetist who's specialist in pain management, a specialist lead physio specialising in pain management, and also a clinical psychologist who specialises in pain management. So we use different clinics. We have multidisciplinary pain clinics, and we have medication review clinics, interventional theatre procedure clinics. We have actually a formalised pain management programme, and it's been so successful in the last year that we've had to actually do two a week now, and it's a 12-week programme. Um, and then we also have our individual physiotherapy clinics and individual psychology if that's required as well. So there's a whole host of different strategies that we use to maybe manage different types of patients' pain. Now you cover an area, some people say yeah. it's the size of Belgium or something yeah. like that, a huge, huge area. It, a um, how, how, do people, how do you manage with this area problem? That is one of our biggest logistic problems. We are the biggest geographical area of any NHS service in the country. We're also very rural and very remote. And that's something we specialise in the NHS Highland. So we've had to take this approach for our chronic pain service. So a lot of stuff is using electronic referral for patients. We also use um, a system where we do a lot of telemedicine appointments. All our patients are triaged by telephone. In some cases, we can offer medication advice there and then on the telephone for the GPs to carry on in the community. And then we actually hopefully try and set a plan up for the patient at this telephone consultation. And it's a dedicated half an hour slot for these patients that's actually run by experienced clinicians, the nurse manager, the physiotherapist and the doctor. Um, so we're finding our first six months audit is showing that this is, patients are really liking that system. It's not to replace face-to-face consultations. That's not the reason. It's to make sure patients are seen the most appropriate way because of, and it cuts down on travelling time and also helps us clinicians make sure we see more patients because we're not having to travel to clinics either. Uh, my name is Dr John McLeod. I'm the consultant anaesthetist with a special interest in uh, chronic pain management and I'm the clinical lead for the pain management service here in NHS Highland. My previous experience was in providing a chronic pain service in Birmingham and uh, clearly the, the challenges in a city centre location are very much different. In a peripheral location, we have a preponderance of patients uh, within the clinic who've, uh, who've tended to move to the Highlands seeking a different sort of lifestyle, I guess as part of a way of addressing some of the pain and health problems that they have. And they do have some uh, difficulty in adjusting to the challenges of living in a remote and rural location. NHS Highland encompasses 40% of the Scottish landmass, but only 300,000 uh, of a population, and so it's very sparsely populated, and we have some very remote communities. It's extremely difficult to provide the same level of service to each and every one of those uh, people as you might be able to provide, in, say, in the Central Belt, where uh, you have 1.2 million people in the Greater Glasgow Conurbation, and therefore a much easier task in terms of delivering service equitably. We use a lot of uh, telephone consultation to try and minimise the travel, both for the staff and for the patients, because prior to us setting up the service in Highland, patients were referred either to Aberdeen or to Dundee, which clearly involved a, a considerable travel, because clearly if you're in, in a lot of pain, um, a four-hour road trip, round trip to, to a clinic is, is not something that you're going to relish. And so we, we, we do two things. We um, try and uh, do our initial assessments over the phone, 
and this uh, allows us to make some sort of a management plan for our patients prior to them ha having to actually come to clinic. We find that um, it allows us to explain the sorts of services that we provide and uh, also we find that for some patients it, it, it transpires that they don't actually need to travel, that we can provide prescribing advice to, to general practice or indeed in a, a range of other things that can be done over the phone. Clearly, for some patients, they will have to come to clinic, but this at least maximises the use of the clinic and uh, reduces the amount of travel. And then for patient follow-up, we do a, a very large pr proportion of our follow-up by telephone, and again, for the same reasons. And so it does greatly help in, in terms of uh, patient and staff travel. People are very resourceful in the Highlands. We know we have to travel. We know the services are not going to be the same as in a big you know, city centre. So we probably will accept a lot more than maybe somebody you know, that's in the city centre. Well, one thing that strikes me that might be a problem is that, that these people are out on their own. They're not yes. in a city. They can't well, meet yeah, up with other yeah. people with similar problems. Uh, I can see where you come from, yes. And I, and I think that certainly will be addressed in the future. At the moment, we do have the Pain Association and we actually support, as an NHS Highland, we do support the Pain Association and they actually come up to the Highlands every month and we actually have the Pain Association and that works really well. I think you also have to remember we were dealing with small communities as well. Some people want to keep their pain private so to have group therapy can actually be a negative thing but yes there is that issue that you know people do feel isolated and we find in our pain management programmes when that group of patients get together they do establish their own networks as well. That's something we have noticed which is great but yes that, that, that is a problem I think for any disease process there is that role of you know, isolation of where people live. The other um, perhaps more surprising benefit that we found from this is that our um, DNA rate for patients not attending clinic dropped from somewhere around 20%. DNA uh, being? Patients did not attend, not contacting the service, but not turning up for clinic. Our rate was around 20%, which is high, but not, not unusual in chronic pain patients. This has fallen to less than 5% uh, since we started uh, engaging with patients on the telephone prior to their attending clinic. How are you getting on with the GPs? Because up to now, I suppose, they've been handling the bulk of chronic pain patients. That's a very interesting question. We, As I mentioned earlier, I, I've had uh, experience of chronic pain management in other, other areas, and I would say that uh, because there's been very little in the way of pain service provision in Highland, our GPs are very much more adept at uh, managing the patients and actually make my job more difficult because many of the strategies that I might have employed and that many of their colleagues elsewhere would be more reluctant to employ prior to sending a patient into clinic they've already um, used in attempting to manage their patients. What we have done is we've, we've tried to engage with uh, our GPs and we've carried out a number of educational events around Highland and I've tried to go out to practices and talk to the GPs directly about the, the sort of service that we provide so that they have some understanding of what we're trying to do with our, our pain service. Uh, we had provision for around about 400 new patients a year, but in fact our numbers are somewhere around 700 for the first year. No question of the service stopping though, I mean, it's a permanent service now for the Highlands, is it? Yes, the, we were granted funding by um, NHS Highland Board and that funding is ongoing. Well, my success story is my consultant decided that when he re re read the referral letter of a lady that it was appropriate for me to actually see this patient. I saw this client and I did a telephone consultation, which is a half an hour explaining the service, then looking at what her problems were, because all patients have to complete a detailed patient questionnaire before they refer to the service. So we really have an in-depth knowledge of their pain before we do the conversation. And it turned 
uh, she had a previous knee surgery and she actually was successful but developed quite significant neuropathic pain. Um, this lady was working full time but struggling, wasn't able to cook a meal, was not able to stand for very long. I gave her some management for, for a GP to carry out in the community. Then I took her into clinic because she wanted to try other approaches. Um, so we've tried different types of creams like capsation cream. We've tried drugs like gabapentin. She put on weight. So then we managed to change her over to onto pregabalin. Her weight stabilised. Um, and we also started up with TENS. And she actually felt a 50 to 60% reduction in her pain. She now feels she's able to cook a meal that she's never been able to do for a long time because she can stand. Her mobility's improved. That's helped with her weight. And the decision between herself and me that she's thought, you know, I don't need to come anymore. I feel happy with what I've got. And we've discharged her from the clinic. But she knows she's always welcome if she needs to be referred back. Jackie Milburn, Dr John McLeod and Jill Wilson talking to John Knox about the pain management service in Scotland's Highland region. You're listening to Airing Pain with me, Paul Evans. And, as always, we issue a word of caution that whilst we believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound, based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Now, the use of opioid drugs to treat chronic pain probably raises more questions from those offered them than any other drug treatment. Possibly this is because of all the issues that heroin, itself an opioid, has laid at our doors. So let's try and clear up some of the confusion. Cathy Stannard's a consultant in pain medicine at Frenchy Hospital in Bristol. Heroin is an opioid. The medicinal name for heroin is diamorphine, and that's a drug that's used in the UK quite a lot, particularly for um, treatment of um, cancer-related pain. But its recreational use obviously has a different preparation. Obviously, it's not a medicinal-grade preparation, but it's actually the same drug with the same actions. Opioids work really by damping down the way that pain nerves send messages, so they reduce the traffic in pain nerves, if you like, so it's more difficult to send a pain message. Probably the most common opioid drug that people would be familiar with would be morphine, which is probably the commonest used drug, but other drugs that people might have heard of would include weaker drugs such as codeine and dihydrocodeine, and other strong drugs, ones that we commonly use in the UK, as well as morphine, are oxycodone, uh, buprenorphine, fentanyl. Opioids are very effective in treating short-term pain. So if you have a broken leg or you've just had an operation, opioids would be one of the most effective interventions to treat that pain. For many patients who have cancer pain, opioids also are very effective. Obviously, this has led to the idea that they might be used to treat pain that's not associated with cancer or injury or surgery. And the data that we have there are a little more conflicting. And I think it would be fair to say, and this is just a broad brush figure, that opioids are probably effective in about 30 or 40% of patients who have persistent pain. We think the circuitry, if you like, of uh, persistent pain is much different and much more complex. Um, it's not just an acute pain that persists. It involves lots of different parts of the nervous system. And the influences on the pain experience are 
very complicated. So emotions, previous experience, mood, expectations, all those sort of things have a very profound influence. And we know how that works. We know from imaging studies that these things actually work by changing the way the brain operates, if you like. And I think that's why a simple drug which changes signalling in one pain system isn't always going to be quite so effective in the longer-term situation. Common side effects of opioids are constipation, which almost everybody will get, and it tends to persist. It isn't something that settles with time. There are other side effects like feeling sick and feeling giddy, which a lot of people will get when they start treatment, but these will tend to pass off with time, although they can be disabling and they are reasons for people stopping drugs in the longer term. We have more concerns about what affects taking these drugs in the long term may have on, for example, hormones. And we know that ladies taking opioid drugs in the long term um, who are of childbearing age may be infertile, they may have reduced sex drive, they may stop their periods. And we know that men taking opioids in the long term, for example, have reduced testosterone levels with all that that implies for sexual function and mood and everything else. So we do know that these drugs affect the hormonal system. There is also a concern that opioid drugs may affect the immune system. So obviously the immune system is the means by which your body um, keeps you healthy and uh, repels infections and generally surveys your internal environment. And we know from patients having very high doses of opioids, for example, at the time of surgery, that uh, their immune function is compromised to a degree. And there is a literature that suggests that immune function may be compromised in the long term by using opioids, but it's very difficult sitting with a patient and being about to prescribe an opioid to say how that will affect that patient and whether it's likely to occur. Uh, I think the hormonal effects are now quite predictable, and we can warn patients about that. But the effects on the immune system, I think, are much more difficult, and they are an area of fairly active research in the opioid world. Now, one of the worries you may have if you prescribed opioids is the fear of addiction. Cathy Stannard again. I think it's very important to distinguish, um, and certainly I would do this in my clinic for anybody starting opioids, between addiction and dependence. Now, that sounds like nitpicking, but it's not really. Dependence occurs with opioids and with other drugs, and all that it means is that if you have been on the drug for a long time, you can't stop it suddenly because you'll feel quite unwell with withdrawal effects. And what that means is that we would take somebody off opioid drugs very slowly to avoid withdrawal effects. And dependence is a normal expected effect from anybody taking this class of drugs. Now that's different from addiction, which is much more a a behavioural thing, um, which is to do with the way that patients take drugs. And the features of addiction are craving, uh, continued use despite harm, behaviours focused towards drug seeking and uh, inability to control drug use. There is a difficult world literature on whether addiction, true addiction, does occur to prescribed opioids for pain relief, and there's quite a lot of controversy. I think it's fair to say that for patients who are not at risk, and by not at risk, patients who don't have an addiction problem already, and that would include addiction to alcohol, who haven't previously had an addiction, it is very rare for people to become addicted to these drugs. But it does occur, and because it can occur, and because addiction is a very disabling condition for patients, we 
will monitor opioid therapy very carefully to make sure that patients don't run into trouble. By the same token, that's quite reassuring for patients because a patient will come and say, might I become an addict? And the answer is there is a very small chance. It is very unlikely, but actually it is very avoidable because there are warning signs of somebody becoming addicted to their drugs and these can be noted and uh, addiction can be avoided. I think prescribing opioids really demands a high degree of trust between a doctor and a patient and it is very much a partnership and we do recommend that patients on opioid therapy are reviewed fairly often so we do get to know our opioid patients very well. Um, but that's important. We obviously want to look for signs that a patient may be running into trouble, but I think a patient has to know when they're on a powerful group of drugs that there's somebody who can give them information and uh, address concerns if they feel that they have either side effects or they, they feel worried about uh, how the drugs are making them feel. So it's, it's a real collaboration. My view is that opioids probably are currently over-prescribed, I think there's a poor recognition with opioid drugs that they may not always be effective for persistent pain. And there is a strange way that these drugs are prescribed compared to other drugs. Many patients will have the experience that they'll go to their doctor and they'll be given an opioid drug and if it doesn't work they'll be given a bigger dose and a bigger dose and a bigger dose. And actually one of the things we're trying to encourage in terms of guiding prescribers is to think of opioids like any other painkiller and if it's going to work it will work in a sensible dose and once a prescriber has to start escalating the dose to get an effect one should start wondering whether really that's the most effective tool for treating that particular pain. That's Cathy Stannard, consultant in pain medicine at Frenchy Hospital, Bristol. And there's advice and guidance for patients and professionals on the use of opioids at the British Pain Society website at britishpainsociety.org. Now, from one form of pain management to another, here's Marion Beetson. She's lived with chronic pain ever since having a workplace accident some 11 years ago. We were taught at the pain management clinics that I, I attended. They went from everything through to your mind, through to your body, and they taught us how to do mindfulness. It's a form of meditation, but you do it at your own pace. It takes a wee while to learn it like everything else, but it's just sitting relaxing, but trying to take your mind off the pain. No matter what's going on round about you, you try and shut it all out. When I was taught and when I was doing it, I was listening to the voices that was telling me, Right, relax. Any meditation, you start from the head down to relax and then the arms, then down to the feet and everything else. But you're conscious of what's going on round about you. But you learn to just say, right, I've heard that, let it go. If you get a pain, you give it, right, breathe through the pain, let it go. It won't take the pain away completely, but through time, you actually learn to shut everything out but it's your time to take time out for yourself and relax it takes you into such a relaxing state that you do fall asleep maybe you haven't slept all night and it's just a case of you need that wee relaxation and the time out for yourself 
even if you tell everybody, I'm going to lie in the bed for half an hour, leave me alone, don't come near me, and just lie in the bed. You're not going to sleep, you're just lying there resting. You're actually resting your whole body. I just felt so chilled after it. I go, right, OK, I'm ready. I'm ready to go on and do something else now. Marin Beetson. So what is mindfulness? Well, Dr David Gillanders is a clinical psychologist who shares his time between the University of Edinburgh and Lothian Chronic Pain Service. Mindfulness meditation is a, a technique that has its tradition in uh, earlier Buddhist practices. But a man called John Kabat-Zinn, who works at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, um, really in the late 1970s and early 1980s, took this practice of, of meditation and stripped out the kind of religious aspects to it and made it a secular practice. So simply defined, mindfulness is paying attention in the present moment with deliberate focus in the here and now, in a non-judgmental and self-accepting kind of a way. So typically we would use mindfulness meditation exercises. We'd begin with a, a mindfulness of the breathing and just ask someone to just notice their breath moving in and out of their nostrils. Whenever their mind wanders away, just notice that it's wandered off and gently invite it back onto their breath with the same kind of patience and encouragement that one might do with a small child learning how to do something new for the first time. So trying to use this kind of exercise to cultivate a kind of self-compassionate, gentle, inviting, willing, present moment focused perspective uh, simply on, on the here and now and the breath. And we might start with an exercise like that of the breath and maybe run that for five, maybe ten minutes. We might also extend asking the person to also become aware of the feeling of being sat upon your chair just now, to notice the sense of temperature in different parts of the hands, to maybe notice what you can hear in the room around you, uh, notice any other sensory perceptions, including, for example... Notice what your body is giving you, what sensations you can feel in your body. And we might have the person scan through their body. And this is an interesting exercise for someone who has chronic pain because a lot of time people take a stance towards their body of not wanting to feel what it's giving them. Uh, and so it can be a significant challenge, even this kind of, are you able to sort of stand or sit willingly with whatever it is that your body's giving you. Um, so in, in that sense, even in that move of, of taking a mindfulness meditation exercise that has its focus on the physical sensations, there's an opportunity there for someone to learn, am I willing to have this or am I fighting to not have this be part of my experience right now? And so we try and kind of use these exercises to encourage people to notice the way that you're standing towards that pain, that sensation right now. Notice some of the things that your mind is giving you about that, that pain sensation and just to notice that there's a separation between uh, the pain sensation, what your mind is telling you about that sensation, and importantly also notice that there's a person here noticing both of those things, an observer perspective from which you can observe both of these events. And so through exercises like that kind of an exercise, we cultivate greater awareness of the present moment, uh, greater kind of being in the here and now, being less kind of hooked into feared futures or, or, or things that might go wrong, worries like what-ifs, less dominated by brooding on past events or if only this had happened or that had not happened, and really trying to live much more in the present, in the here and now. And, and that's mindfulness. 
So it's living in the now, and it's not me saying, oh, tomorrow's going to be dreadful, you know, I've done all this interviewing in Edinburgh, and I'm going to feel so rotten tomorrow. I should focus on just the way I feel now, go through my body, feel my breath going in, drop my shoulders, just relax. Well, it's an interesting point because um, we don't do mindfulness meditation in order to relax. We do it to get more present with where we're at right now. I've heard people say, for example, we don't do mindfulness to feel better, we do mindfulness to feel better. In relation to what your mind was just giving you in that moment, you know, I'm, I'm going to feel terrible tomorrow because I've been here in Edinburgh doing all these interviewing. Well, we would use this device of saying, notice what your mind just gave you. Uh, and kind of talking about the mind in this third person in this way helps one to just kind of step back from the literal content of what your thoughts are saying to you so that you can kind of make more of a choice about do I want to buy into what my mind's saying there or do I want to notice it as just a thought? Mm -hmm. uh, so this kind of sort of detachment is one of the features of mindfulness and one of the features of acceptance. So what I'd do, I'd encourage you to sort of say, well, just notice what happens if you... If that thought, you know, I'm going to feel terrible tomorrow, if you buy that thought, if you let that thought take control of this vehicle that's your life, where does that lead you? Versus noticing that there's this thought here that's trying to grab control of your vehicle. And does it have to be in charge? Or actually, are you driving this bus? David Gillander's bringing this edition of Airing Pain to a close. And you can find more details of this programme, including download links for all editions of Airing Pain, on the Pain Concern website. And that's at painconcern, one word, painconcern.org.uk. And don't forget that you can put a question to our panel of experts and make a comment about the programmes on our blog, message board, email, Facebook and Twitter. All the details, including the address to write to if you prefer pen and paper, well, they're at the website too. I'll leave you with Marion Beetson for the last words on mindfulness. I use it all the time. Sometimes you don't even realise that you've, you're going into it. But the more you use it, you actually just shut everything out without even realising it. At the end of it, you just give yourself a big deep breath. <sighs> time to move on. Do something else.